and the New Testament books, 17 in the Old Testament, 17 in the New Testament. Angels are mentioned at least 273 times in Scripture, 108 times in the Old Testament, 165 times in the New. I just give you those statistics to let you know this is not an obscure subject. Angels are a serious subject in the Bible. Many years ago, I had a friend that I had some interaction with, and I noticed she always wore angel pins. She had angel jewelry. She had angel T-shirts. Everything about her was focused upon angels. Listen, she had some angel stickers on her car. I forgot exactly what it said, but there was a very popular angels are watching over me, something like this. One day I asked her, well, what do you think about Jesus Christ? I know I noticed you're a very spiritual person. You're very interested in angels. What do you think about Jesus? And she said, I really don't think a whole lot about Jesus. I'm focused in upon angels. Now, see, that's a pseudo-spirituality. It's a false spirituality. It's a spirituality that's built upon something that we ought not to be building spirituality upon. So we do need to make sure we understand angels and have a correct view of them. They do exist. Most significantly, I think, is that in the scriptures, angels are prominent at many very important events. For example, the angels sang for joy at the creation of the earth. That's Job chapter 38, verse 7. They protect and proclaim the holiness of God. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, and Isaiah 6, 3. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Angels were given the special privilege of announcing or predicting and announcing the birth of Jesus Christ. And also, as we've studied in the past, announcing his resurrection. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Also, Luke chapter 24, verses 2 through 7. Angels were also prominent in many other activities. These are just a, a few that we might mention. The whole contemporary discussion, and I might say obsession with angels, and the prominence of angels in the biblical record are, are themselves reasons why it's legitimate for us to take a couple nights and just consider what the Bible has to say about angels. There are some very practical things that we can consider with regard to angels as well. The first, it should be a comfort to know that angels are God's servants on behalf of his redeemed children. They're God's servants on behalf of his redeemed children. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. They appear frequently in Scripture to guard God's people. I hope you caught two things there. They are servants on behalf of God's redeemed children, and they appear frequently in Scripture to guard God's people, to guard and aid God's people. Angels, in Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, provide a powerful example of how we ought to praise and worship God. The study of angels also serves to remind us that we're engaged in a spiritual battle. This is mentioned in Hebrew, in it, rather, in Ephesians chapter 6. There are evil angels that are bent on the destruction of God's children. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a Tolkien novel. This is real. There are evil angels. We would call them demons or fallen angels that are bent on your destruction. That is, if you're walking in fellowship with God. May I be frank with you for a moment? If you're not walking in fellowship with God, they could probably care less about you. It's only the ones, it's only individual believers that are a threat to them that they're going to go after. This is not an encouragement for you 
to say, well, I think I just won't be a threat, so I'm not part of this heavenly conflict. That's not the point at all. We need to have a front row seat where the fire is hottest in this battle, as Lewis Perry Chaffer said. And if you are walking in fellowship with God, and if you do have a front row seat, you will be the target of angelic interference. So it's a great encouragement to know that the Holy Spirit is greater than these angels. There is a heavenly conflict going on outside. I've seen artwork. I think that's beautiful. And it'll have a church or a family, and they'll be praying. There'll be a battle of the heavenlies going on above them. And there's almost like this bubble. And that bubble probably is representative of the Holy Spirit keeping them out. They exist, but we don't have to fear them. They should, it just should be a reminder to us, though. The study should be a reminder that angels exist and there is a war out there. Angels also serve as a warning. And this is big. Because even those angels that were closest to God sinned. Now, does that blow you away? It blows me away. Angels, one in particular, Lucifer, who had access to the throne room of God, this is, baffles me beyond anything I can imagine, still sinned. Even though he had access to God. And that should be a warning to us. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 15. A study of angels should lead us to a healthy respect of angels while still being careful not to make them an object of our worship. There's a difference between having respect, a healthy respect, and making them an object of worship. Like my friend, she didn't worship Jesus Christ. She didn't worship God. She worshiped something that God had created. And when we worship something that God has created, whether it's a spouse or a child or a friend or a car or the mountains or the ocean or angels, there's a word for it in Scripture, and that is idolatry. And the last time I looked, like that's the first one that we're supposed to avoid. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And sometimes we place human beings over God. And we make an idol out of a friend or a spouse or, a, or a, a daughter or a son. But we can also make an idol out of some place that we like to go. The ocean or the mountains. We can also make an idol out of angels. They are powerful beings. They're supernatural beings that are every bit as real as you and me. Just because we have a physical body and they don't, we'll study later. Doesn't mean they're less real than we are. But they should be respected. Certainly they should be respected. But never Worship. And then finally, the study of angels should bring a deep sense of gratitude to us for the salvation that God has provided humanity. Because it was not for angels, but for man, that Christ became incarnate and atoned for sin. The death that Jesus Christ died on the cross did not pay the penalty for angelic sin. So we should be extremely grateful for the grace that God has shown us. Why? I don't know. The Bible never says. So if I was to speculate tonight on why God didn't offer some other form of salvation to angels, I'd be way out of bounds because I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't even think we should try to reason our way to it. There's not enough data to reason our way to that. But we should be grateful. We should be humbled. And we should be grateful for what God has done for us, seeing as though angels were created before us, they're more powerful than us, more intelligent than us, yet Christ's death didn't satisfy 
the justice of the Father in that respect for angels. A word of caution should be made before we get into some of the details themselves with regard to the study of angels. Karl Barth, who was not an orthodox theologian, but he did have something good to say about this study of angels, referred to the study of angels as the most remarkable and difficult of all theological studies of the Bible. That's an interesting thing to say, given the fact that there are a lot of difficult theological subjects out there. Millard Erickson put it this way, Although there are abundant references to angels in the Bible, the nature of those references, not such to make them very helpful in developing an understanding of angels. Every reference to angels in the Bible is incidental to some other topic. They're not treated in and of themselves. There's not a chapter in the Bible that goes point one, point two, point three. This is what we know about angels. We can learn a lot about angels, but angels come in obliquely in these biblical accounts. That's why it's a difficult subject. But it's a necessary subject. But it's a difficult one. They're not treated in themselves. God's revelation never aims, I'm still quoting Erickson, very fine theologian, God's revelation never aims at informing us as to the exact nature of angels. When they are mentioned, it is always to inform us further about God, what he does and how he does it. So the Bible offers very few prescriptive or declarative statements about angels. But from the record of their activity, we can make legitimate inferences, even though they come in obliquely into the story. For example, we studied over the Christmas break how the angel Gabriel came and announced the fact of the birth of the Messiah to, to both to Mary and to Zechariah. He's a part of the story, and we can make inferences from what we know from those stories. But there are very few declarative statements about angels. These Inferences, though, are sufficient for us to gather them all together and learn something about angels. John Calvin set the tone, I think, for this study. Let me quote him. Hang in there with me. It's worthwhile. Calvin said, Let us remember here, as in all religious doctrine, that we ought to hold to one rule of modesty and sobriety. Now, let me, let me stop for just a moment. This is one of the things that made Calvin great. I don't agree with everything Calvin said, but this is a good quote. Because what he says here is when we're doing systematic theology, we need to stick with primarily, first and foremost, what the Bible says. And that's what Calvin's going to say. Now let me start over. Let us remember here, as in all religious doctrine, that we ought to hold one rule of modesty and sobriety. Not to speak or guess or even seek to know concerning obscure matters, anything except what has been imparted to us by God's Word. That is so important. I hope you'll allow me to read it one more time. Not to speak or guess or even seek to know concerning obscure matters, anything except what God has imparted to us through His Word. I'm going to pause again, and I'm just going to say this is an occupational hazard, if I could use that metaphor, for most of us who have been in God's Word for a long period of time. We get a little bored with the basics of the Christian life. I've heard the whole thing about salvation before. I've heard about eternal security before. I know about God's indwelling Holy Spirit before. And 
So we want something new and interesting and exciting. As if the Word of God wasn't exciting enough in and of itself. And so sometimes, and I say this in love, because I mean, I do it too sometimes, but sometimes we get so wrapped up in minutia, in the obscure things, the Bible says nothing about. And we spend all these hours and hours trying to figure out, for example, to take something from a past generation, and it's not an issue here, so I think we can look at it objectively. There was a past generation that did spend untold hours debating how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. You probably have heard this from the past. Maybe you didn't. It's kind of silly. We don't have that discussion anymore. But I've got to tell you, I do answer letters quite often. And if you were the one of the ones that wrote me, please don't take offense. But sometimes I have to answer back, I don't know. As far as I know, the Bible never gives us the answer to that question. And I hope you'll accept that. There's so much that we need to do and to learn that the Bible does say. Heaven forbid we ever become so arrogant, so prideful that we think, well, I've got this down. I've got it down. I used to go to a Bible study every night, Monday through Friday. It irritated the heck out of the guy that I worked for. Wonderful guy, but it irritated the heck out of him. Finally, one day he got so frustrated, he said, when are you going to finish that book? I said, probably never, because when we get to the end of it, I hope we go back and start again. So this whole thing about obscurity, we need to be careful about. There's so much that we can know. In the study of angels, I'm going to have to say more times than in the study of any other area of systematic theology, I don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. So it, it teaches us to hone in and focus in upon those things that the Bible does speak about. I think it's a good, healthy exercise for us to, uh, to engage in. Calvin goes on to say, Furthermore, in the reading of the Scripture, we ought to ceaselessly endeavor to seek out and meditate upon those things that make for edification. May I pause again, if you don't mind? What benefit to your spiritual life would it have been to know how many angels could dance on the head of a pin? And again, I'm taking something from my past generation, so hopefully nobody's offended in here by that. But what spiritual benefit is it to you? So if you find yourself just wrapped up in some of these issues, that's a question I would ask myself before I allowed myself to spend too much time on it. Does it matter? And if you can honestly say, you know what, I cannot for the life of me see how it matters, then my suggestion is move on to something that does matter. Back to Calvin. Let's not indulge in curiosity or in the investigation of unprofitable things. And because the Lord wills to instruct us, not in fruitless questions, but in sound godliness, in the fear of his name, and in true trust, and the duties of his holiness, let us be satisfied with that knowledge. For this reason, if we would be duly wise, we must leave those empty speculations which idle men have taught apart from God's word concerning the nature, orders, and numbers of angels. The theologian's task is not to divert their ears with chatter, but to strengthen consciences by teaching things true, sure, and profitable. Therefore, bidding farewell to that foolish wisdom, Calvin writes, let us examine in the simple teaching of Scripture what the Lord would have us to know about angels. So that's what I endeavor to do tonight and perhaps next week as well. The first thing that we need to know about angels, and this is critical, and that is, angels are created beings. You know who else is a created being? That's right. You are, and I am. 
They're created, we're created. They are not the creator. God created angels. As creatures, they are not to be confused or elevated to the status of God himself. This is what I mean by practical application. This is practical. It's theological and it's practical at the same time. Angels are created. So therefore, we don't worship them. There are brothers and sisters in that sense. Now, angels don't have gender. But there are brothers in that sense. They're on a par with us. They're not ever meant to be worshipped. The Bible does not record the specific process by which they were created, but it does make it clear that God created them. In Psalm 148, verses 2 through 5, angels are listed along with the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars as products of God's creative activity. Now, you see, this is what I'm talking about. We can, we can be dogmatic about this. I can't tell you how many can dance on the head of a pin, but I can be dogmatic about this and tell you that they were created because we have a biblical passage for it. Psalm 148. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun, moon. Praise him, you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. In the same way that he commanded the mountains to be created, the sun, moons, the stars to be created, he commanded angels and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever and he gave a decree that they wouldn't pass away. That's Psalm 148. Verses 2 through 6. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So who created angels? God did. We see that that we are they are to praise him because they've been created. We see that God's the one that created them. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 says something similar. For by him all things were created. Did you hear that? By him, and that's a reference to Jesus Christ, all things were created. It's not a reference to himself. God's an uncreated being, so it's got to be everything outside of himself, which includes angels. They're created beings, so what is the application of that? We don't worship them. And I frankly, this is me. But I frankly would be real careful about putting stickers on my car or wearing angel jewelry or an angel wristwatch. You're perfectly welcome to do that. But if you do, make sure somehow people know that you're not worshiping that angel. That angel is something that the person that you worship created. It's a subtlety, but it's very important. I just would be very careful about it. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. That's Pauline terminology for angelic beings. All things were created by him and for him, meaning that angels were not created so that we should worship. Angels were created, worship them. Angels were created so that they could worship God. They were created by God and for God's good pleasure. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Again, the application. Angels are part of God's created order. There is never, I repeat, never, ever, never, never, never any justification for any creature worshiping another creature. All worship is directed toward the creator. When were angels created? I don't know. 
We can't say for certain. But we can know this. We know that they were created before the earth. The answer to this problem is not going to alter your spiritual life, but it may play a part in your understanding of the fall of Satan. So I do want to spend just a moment on this idea of when angels were created. Conservative theologians usually hold one of two views as to when angels were created. Some would say angels were created on the first day, Genesis chapter 1. Others say that angels were created before the first day. They also point to Genesis chapter 1. Both of those have to acknowledge that angels were present at the creation of the earth. So no matter which view you hold there, you have to view you have to hold that angels were present when this realm, this physical realm, was created. That's Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. Listen carefully. Where were you? And this is when God is really getting on to Job because Job got real sassy with God. Makes got angry with him and he's demanding answers from God. So God says, okay, you've asked me a bunch of questions. Now, I'll tell you what, why don't you gird up your loins? I'm going to ask you a few questions. And he's rattling off these things to Job. It's a beautiful part of the Bible. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation, God asked Job. Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Now here's the part about angels. While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. When that cornerstone was set, when the earth was created, the angels shouted for joy. Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. Quickly, briefly, those who adhere to the idea that God created angels on the first day, the six days of creation on the first day, they look to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, compared to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. In the beginning, God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. The exact phrasing also occurs in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So those who hold that God created angels on the first day would say that this passage stated that God created the heavens and everything contained in the heavens during the six days of Genesis chapter 1. Advocates of the second view, of which I happen to be one, look at Genesis 1-1 a little differently. We look at that as a descriptive title to the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you want to open there, that would be fine. But as you do, let me tell you that Genesis was not written to satisfy our curiosity about exactly how God did this. I wish... He would have included a chapter 2 on just exactly how did you do it, but that's not the purpose of Genesis. Especially the first few chapters of Genesis are written to the primary audience at the time. It was a Jewish audience who was out in the wilderness, who was about to go into the land, and were to be told, and we're going to be told that they were going to conquer giants in the land, and they were very fearful. The giants in the land worshipped things like the sun, the moon, and the stars. Also, certain animals, which we've already established tonight that God created. So if God created these things, and God, the same God is telling you to go in and destroy these people who worship these things, they should have had a confidence to know that I can do this because the very God who created the things that they worship is on my side. 
That's the primary purpose of Genesis, not to satisfy our curiosity. But I do have to tell you this. There is a very good reason to understand that Genesis chapter 1-1 is a, is a title sentence to the whole chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. Now, verse 2 begins, and the earth was. It doesn't mean that it became. It's just it's a statement that this is how it was. It was formless and void. Tohu bohu. Actually, there are three words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that all have to do with judgment in the scriptures. Tohu and bohu are judgment words, formless and void. There's another judgment word that comes up, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Those are three judgment words. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So as we see the earth, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see an earth that is in some state that is being described by three judgment words. Tohu, bohu, and hoshen. All three words are words in Hebrew Bible that indicate that something bad has happened. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, we find out that God didn't create the world, Tohu. He didn't create it formless or void or dark. But yet it is this way. Some judgment. The Bible doesn't say here what the judgment was. So I'm not going to be dogmatic. But I'm going to say this. We know that angels were created before the earth was created. We know from Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, passages we'll mention probably next week, that Satan did have a judgment and fall. It makes sense if we put that data together. And this is not idle speculation because we have a certain amount of data to put together. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, something terribly bad has happened. Something terribly negative. Tohu, bohu, and hoshek, those three judgment words, tell us that. These are not words of perfection. This is not the way that God created it. This is the way it was, though. And if something terribly bad had happened, and these are judgment words, we would have to assume something happened prior to his creation in Genesis chapter 1 that was of a, a negative nature. Now, the only thing that we can search in the Scriptures and find that was of the magnitude, or actually anything, that would have happened before the earth was created that would have indicated some sort of judgment is the fall of Satan. Isaiah 14, only two passages. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. When it comes to when were the angels created, were they created on the first day when the earth was created or were they created before that? I would certainly lean toward the view that they're created sometime before that. We would call it, in our terminology, in eternity past. How long before that? I have no idea. Was it 24 hours before that, or was it millennia before that? I'm not going to say because I don't know. But it had to be enough time for Satan to have been created, have access to the throne room of God, get tired of being in the throne room of God, and rebel against him. So my view would be that angels were created sometime before the first day in eternity past. Either one you can take and still be orthodox. But that would be my, that would be my opinion. Well, we've, we've established that angels are created beings, and we've, we have speculated that in terms of the time of their creation, it was either on the first day or before the first day. It had to be before human beings anyway. At the very least, it was before human beings. But what do we know about their nature? 
Well, the first thing the Bible tells us about their nature is that they are spirit beings. Throughout human history, encounters with angels have been the exception, not the norm. Angels are normally unseen because they're spirit beings. However, God has in the past endowed them in special cases with the ability to take upon human form and function temporarily to carry out God's purposes. Angels are ministering spirits. Angels are called ministering spirits. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, that's the third reference tonight, the third time I brought it up tonight, that angels have, in addition to their responsibility of praising and worshiping God, they have a responsibility in some way to protect us, to serve us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. They're normally invisible, but they do have the ability from time to time, to take upon human form and function. Remember Abraham met with two angels and then the angel of the Lord. They sat down and ate with him. They talked with him. They walked with him. So they had the ability temporarily to look like human beings. Angels don't possess physical bodies as we do, but they may assume a physical body temporarily. Some have speculated that angels have some sort of spirit body. I'm not going to speculate on that too much. That was a question in the Middle Ages. That's back when they were talking about how many angels could dance on the head of the pen. But I don't think we need to be dogmatic on whether their spiritual body is some sort of physical body. Now here's, well briefly I'll tell you what it is. God is pure spirit. In order to be pure spirit you'd have to be God. So even though angels are spiritual beings, might they have some sort of physical aspect to their spiritual being? You see why I didn't want to go over it. It's, it's a little bit of a mind twister, but that's what they were discussing back in the Middle Ages. Abraham, again, had a remarkable encounter with three men who we later find out to be angels. He provides them fellowship. He has a meal with them in Genesis chapter 18. The spokesman among those three angels was called the Lord by Abraham. And when these visitors appear in Sodom, then there's only two, if you'll recall and they are described as angels there in Genesis chapter 19. It's probable that the one that they address as the Lord is none other than the angel of the Lord, who is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The, it doesn't say that Jesus Christ is an angel in this sense, but he is the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord was Jesus Christ. They ate human food. They carried on human conversation. How that took place, I don't know. When Moses wrote Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he didn't see fit to tell us exactly what the physiological process was there. Angels are not subject to death. Luke chapter 20, verses 35 through 36, But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age when the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. Angels don't die. The text goes on to say about humans, they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Angels who fell with Satan are subject to eternal judgment. But apparently no angel, whether elect or fallen, ever experiences death or annihilation. They'll experience death in the sense of separation. 
separation from their creator, separation from the blessing of the place of blessing of their creator, but they won't experience death itself. So angels are spirit beings. But angels are also personal beings. And we see that from the scripture. Again, all I'm trying to present tonight are things that we can point to the scripture for the answer to. Angels are spirit beings. Angels are personal beings. Personality is a characteristic of God and hence is a characteristic of man because we're created in God's image. There's no place in the Bible that says that angels were created in the image of God. That's something that's reserved for mankind. However, the scriptures do ascribe to angels characteristics of personality. I'm not saying that they're created in the image of God. That would be going too far. But we do know that they were given elements of personality. The first one is that they were given intelligence, which is an aspect of personality. And this is one that is most evident in the scriptures. Well, we've already mentioned Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19 as they carry on conversation. They possess exceptional intellectual ability. The angel Gabriel was well informed about the biblical prophecies concerning John the Baptist and also concerning Jesus. Gabriel was also knowledgeable about the future when he informed Mary that she would become the mother of Jesus, God's son. If Satan is in view in Ezekiel chapter 28, and I believe that he is the one in view in that chapter, he clearly possesses intelligence. In Ezekiel 28, 12, you were the model of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. While angels are intelligent, I want you to hear this, angels are not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. Angels are intelligent, but they don't know everything. Angels also possess emotions, which is one of the elements of personality. They exuded, as I said before, joy when God created the heavens and the earth. That's Job chapter 38, verse 7. They experience intense desire as they observe the salvation that God has provided for man. The salvation of a sinner produces great joy, produces great emotion in angelic beings. So they have intellect, they have emotion, and they also have will. This is the most strategic element of personality that's exhibited by angels, and that is that they make choices. They are capable of responding to a command from God to worship Christ as Son. That's in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. But the most striking evidence that angels have will is that some angels chose for God and some angels chose against God. According to Isaiah 14, Lucifer five times says, I will. He's exercising his own volition or his will. I will in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. The evil spirits were able to ask for mercy from Christ, and they chose an alternative banishment. Remember when they went into the pigs? They chose that, Luke chapter 8. And finally, I think this is where we'll stop tonight because the next section is too long for, for the time we have left. There is an aspect of personality that is not as well known, but but many adhere to it, and that is the, the aspect of personality called service. Angels do serve. They are extensively involved in the service and the worship of God, which means they have personality. If they're going to worship, they must have personality. 
and they appear in God's presence to give an account of their own activity. Job chapter 1 verse 6, chapter 2 verse 1. They appreciate and guard God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3. They frequently act as God's personal representatives in ways that require personality. Matthew chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 2, and Hebrews chapter 13. So angels are spirit beings. Angels also have personality. Bottom line for tonight's time together is that angels like you and like me are created beings. We need to keep them in their proper perspective. We need to respect their intelligence and their power, as we'll see in a, at a later time. We need to respect that, but we should never worship them. In terms of application, not only do we not worship angelic beings, we should never, by the same token, ever worship a human being. Even if it is your, it, that person is your beloved because if we put any human being, much less an angel, but in terms of application now, if we put any human being, any other created being on the top shelf of our lives, then we have made an idol out of that person and God's not going to honor it. Whether it's your spouse or whether it's your daughter or whether it's your son or one of your best friend you have in the world, don't ever put them on the top shelf because just like angels, they are a created being. Only God is big enough to be on the top shelf of the